Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Third chapter of the book of Ephesians. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning, and let's dive right in if you would. Stand with me, and let's start reading in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. Start in verse 14, and it says this, For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to his riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, this morning we have opened your word. We have read it. Now I ask this of you, that you take that word and make it alive in our hearts. You make very little of me and very much of you. Today, may you be glorified. This we pray in your son's holy, precious name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. This is, in fact, in Ephesians this far, this is the second prayer that we've seen in the book of Ephesians. That first prayer was over in chapter 1, if you remember, as we were just getting started in the book of Ephesians some time back. And it's over in The first chapter started in verse 15 and runs down through the 23rd verse. And Paul there was praying for one specific thing. As we started the book of Ephesians, he was praying that we would understand what he was teaching. And understand what God was revealing through that mystery. Understand exactly who you are. See, what he was praying for, he said there in verse 17, is he prayed that you would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, not just the hearing, but the spirit to understand what God meant. In verse 18, he said that you may be enlightened. It gives us an example of like when you walk into a room and it's dark and you're trying to find something that you turn on this light that you may be able to search, seek, and find whatever the item is. And Paul was praying that our hearts and minds would be enlightened. That may, we may find that which we were seeking for. Also in verse 18, he says that he wanted us to know the hope of his calling. In other words, know that you were chosen, selected by God to be in Christ Jesus, to be a part of the family. He moved from that into verse 18 to saying, And because you understand that you're chosen and that you're taken into this family by God's choosing, you have this richness of an inheritance. If you remember, we talked about that inheritance. And then as he got towards the end of that first prayer in the first chapter, he talked about the greatness of this power. He says all these things are done not on your own strength, not on your own power, but it's done by the greatness of this power of God. And as you parallel that, as you look at the prayer in the third chapter, because that's where we're at is the second prayer of Paul, Paul prays that we have an application of that understanding. He first prayed that you understood. Now he prays that you take what you understand and you apply it to your life. He prays that we would not just be doers, or not just be hearers, but be doers of the word. I'm reminded of James chapter 1 and verse 22 when it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. What was James saying that Paul is praying for here? The exact same thing. That you're not just a hearer of the word. That you don't just come to gain knowledge and to sit on a pew and to check Sunday off your list as having been done. But that you come to be a hearer, that that hearing may become application in your life and you become a doer. Hearing the word without application is not knowing anything about the word. It's like being a person who walks up to a mirror first thing in the morning to see what you look like. You take a glance in the mirror and before you fix anything, you walk away forgetting that you still had a piece of spinach in your tooth from the night before. Your hair was standing straight up. Your cursory glance in the mirror was of no coincidence, of no use, because you did nothing with that look in the mirror. What both James and Paul are saying is that it's not good enough just to hear. Your life had better look different because of the Word. And what he's saying there to us is that we should be both hearers and doers. This particular prayer indicates that there's going to be a shift in this epistle to the Ephesians. Paul's completing the three chapters on theology, three difficult chapters, understanding who you are in Christ, understanding what Christ is to you, understanding God's participation in your salvation is drawing you and your participation in the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and how those things work out in your life. Those are difficult passages. We've worked through those over the last year, talking about those things in our life. And now there's this shift that he's going to launch into three chapters of application of this. But before he shifts and goes into that application, he pauses to pray for the church of which you're a part. So this prayer is for you as much as it is for this, this Ephesian church. There's five things that Paul asked for for this church. We're going to try to cover all five things this morning that he asked for and close out this chapter. The first of those five things that he asked for in Ephesians chapter 3 is we find in verses 14 through 16. When he says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth was named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. What Paul first asked for is strength in the inner man. There's a reason that he asked for things in a certain order. These things build one upon another. Without the first, you can never have the last. Without the second, the whole puzzle falls apart. The first thing that he asked for of God, that he tells his church, this is what I asked God for for you, is inner strength. He starts off that section saying that he's prayed. He tells us who he prays to so that we understand that his thought process about this God that he is asking to do this in the church. He says in, in verses 14 there that he's praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that to remind us of the sovereignty of God that he talked about in chapter 1 when he says Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also says it to remind us of the graciousness of God that he talked about in the second chapter. When in the second chapter he says you were saved not by works but by his grace. 
So he says he's praying to this Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all things, has extended to you his graciousness as he brought you into the family. Then he goes on to talk about that family in, in the uh, next verse there in 15, when he says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth was named. What is he referring to when he says, from where the whole uh, family in heaven and earth is named? You heard me mention to the kids earlier, we're all made in one likeness. We're all made by one person. We're all created by one God. We're created in His likeness. And His objectivity for us, the the thing that He would have us become through His Son, Jesus Christ, is this one family that Paul's been teaching us about. This one family. So he says this family in heaven and earth are named from this God. He's reminding us of this God, the Creator. You remember he talked about that in chapter 1. But he also reminds us that we're all one family in Christ to the glory of God. That was what he stressed in chapter 2. So he starts off this beginning of the prayer with some recollection about what he had taught. But he goes on in verse 16 to say this. He, He says that he would grant you. A lot of times we skip over the little words and in verses and we don't stop and think about it but think about what paul was asking paul was asking this god that is so powerful that he created each of you in a unique manner with unique fingerprints and they've come now to realize that the irises in our eyes are all different we all look different and we act different and we have different backgrounds and god is so powerful that he created each of us with our own unique touch yet all for one purpose And Paul was asking this God that is so powerful that he could create each human being different, create a world that spins on an axis a particular distance from the sun that we don't burn up and we don't freeze, that we continually see that rotation day in and day out as the sun rises and sets. This God who is so mighty and powerful that he controls the weather, he controls the growing season, He controls all that happens around us right down to us. And Paul goes to this God, this all-powerful God, and he says, God, I want you to grant something to your church. See, Paul doesn't go whimsically to God. He goes to God realizing that all that he has is a gift of a gracious God. He goes to God realizing there is not a thing that God owes him. He goes to God understanding that God loves him. And he reflects that 20th verse that he ends with when it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think. Here's what Paul's thought process is. God loves me. If I'm living within God's will and I desire for God's will to work in the lives of others, All I have to do is ask God, and God is faithful to do that which is within his will. And he goes to God, and he says, God, grant this to them. There's nothing that he's done or we've done that deserves anything from God, nothing. God does it to us out of his graciousness. But he doesn't stop there when he says, grant them, but he goes on to say this, as you grant it to him, Father, do it according to the riches of his glory. According to, there's a neat word there. It's actually used three times in three different ways in this text. This particular 
text, uh, this particular time in the text, is used as a singular word, uh, kata. Kata is the Greek word there, and this Greek word can be translated many different ways. Just as an example, here it's translated according to, or because of maybe one way. It's used in conjunction with another word later in verse 17, oikeo. Oikeo is another word that it's used with, and there it's translated to dwell. The third time it's used in this passage is in conjunction with another word. It's a little bit of a, a long word, a difficult to understand within itself, but it's epescope. Epescope is the second place that it's tied in the conjunction with in the verse 18. And there in that translation, in that particular section, is translated comprehend. So you get an idea of what this word kate uh, is, is meaning. This word kate can be translated different ways according to how it's used within the text. Here, it's used and translated according to. It's kind of neat to understand because this sets in my mind, as it did Paul's, how God blesses us, how God gives us the things that he does, and how God has already given us so much through his son, Jesus Christ. See, we sometimes as humans think we deserve things. We see on the news now people marching all over the place because of their rights. We see people demanding equal opportunities because it's their right. We see all these things about rights. Let me break the news to you. With God, you have no rights. Because God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. Anything that he grants you, he grants you out of his graciousness, and he doesn't do it out of anything that you have. He does it according to his riches. See, it's great to understand that God loves us so much that we don't have to be anything for him to make us something Out of his graciousness, he gives to us according to his riches. See, Paul's reminding us God doesn't give it to us because we deserve it. God doesn't give it to us because we already have something and he's making it better. He doesn't give it to us because we've earned it. He gives us all those things that he's taught us in the first three chapters because he loves us. You want something to be thankful for at Thanksgiving? Think about how much God loves you. He loves you so much. He was ridiculed, spit upon, murdered on a cross for you. He loved you so much when you were so worthless that he died. He died on your behalf. And what Paul is saying here is give according to who you are, God not according to who I am. And he says, out of the riches of your glory, just how vast is God's richness. I don't know how you could ever wrap your head around the vastness of a God, much less the vastness of his richness. The Bible tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible tells us that he's in control of all things. The Bible says that he made all things. Everything that we see have could even imagine it's God's and what Paul is petitioning God to do is out of those riches out of that vastness of those riches to do something for this group and what's he asking them to do asking God to do he's asking them to give them inner strength and he says this in verse 16 the second half there as he moves down he says according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit 
See, Paul never loses focus about who God is in this process. He says, I want them to have inner strength so that they grow and be, be good Christians and look like Christ, but it must be done through the Spirit. I think about Acts. Acts chapter 1, as a matter of fact. Acts chapter 1, right at the very beginning of this Acts, we see Jesus is here with them, and they, they've, they've had this whole process of him passing away and rising again, and all these things have happened, and this is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. And it says this, and uh, let's just start in verse 8. Well, actually, verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So what is he answering? The question is, when is your kingdom going to come? We've seen you die. We've seen that you've risen from the dead. When is your kingdom going to come? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But he goes on to say this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What's Jesus saying to him? He's saying, don't worry about when the kingdom's going to be set up. You're not going to be left powerless because when I leave, this Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell you. And that Holy Spirit is going to provide the power it takes to proclaim the message of my death, burial, and resurrection. He says, you will not be left powerless. You will be all-powerful, not because of you, but because of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. What Paul is asking for in Ephesians, as he's asking God to come strengthen the inner man, is that he do it through that same Holy Spirit that came and filled those believers in Acts. And he's saying, do it in their inner man. What's he talking about? Their heart, their mind, their soul. See, the outer man is quickly declining. I would dare say today my outer man is in worse shape than it's ever been any time in my life because it's older than it was yesterday got up this morning feeling like I'd been run over by a train for some reason with a backache and I just realized this outer man is quickly fading this outer man is on a downhill slope of life I realize that each of us every day we live are one day closer to the day that this physical body expires I realize that. But what Paul is asking here is not that that outer man be made new, but that that inner man be made new. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Don't think it could be said any clearer than this in the 16th verse of the 4th chapter of 2 Corinthians. It says, therefore, we do not lose hearts. In other words, we don't lose heart at what's going on. He says, even though our outward man, our body, is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Does it give you a picture of what Paul's asking of God to do for the church? He's not asking that he heal this physical body. He's not asking that he makes all of us well physically. What he's asking is that he makes the inner man day by day more like Christ. See, to save your body but to lose your soul would make you a fool. But to save your soul, no matter what happens to your body, would make you blessed. <laughs> would make you one of God's. And what Paul is asking here of God is no matter the condition of the outward 
fix that inward and strengthen that inward man. Why is he doing that? He's saying for us to grow in the Lord, our inner man, he knows, must be strengthened. If our outer man is strengthened, or if our inner man is strengthened by the Holy Spirit, then the second thing that Paul prays for can take place. And what is the second thing? We find it in verse 17. Right after he said in verse 16, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the first thing was that our inner strength be brought renewed day by day. The second thing he's asking for is that we be indwelt by Christ. Well, that raises a question in my mind. I don't know if it does yours or not. If you're saved, where does Christ live? In you. So why then is Paul asking that the church, which he's already said was selected by God and brought into faith through God's work, through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, so we understand that to mean that the church has been saved. So what is Paul asking? Is he asking that more get saved? What's he asking? You see, because you may say, doesn't Jesus already live in me as a Christian? And the answer to that question is yes. As a Christian, he does. But understand this, the word that Paul is using there for dwell is kind of a complex word. He's not talking about salvation when he talks about Christ dwelling in your heart here. What he's talking about is sanctification, which is a totally different thing altogether. See, from the day that we are saved to the day that we leave this earth, we should be growing in Christ-likeness. We should each day be renewed to look more and more like Christ. See, even though Christ lives in us, my question is, does Christ feel at home in us? You see, because here's that word used again that we talked about a few minutes ago, that uh, kata. That kata is actually coupled again with that word oikeo. So it's kata oikeo is the way the word is there in Greek for dwell. That word kata, I told you, could be translated different ways. The best way to understand the translation as it's used here in that conjunction is the word down. Down. You say, that doesn't make any sense, down. But the use of the word here as down would indicate this settling down. This being put in place to be a part, to have a place. The second word, oikeo, is the word that's actually used to occupy or inhabit. Occupy or inhabit. So it's a a word that indicates more than just a visit. More than just a visit. It means to actually have a home. See, there's a difference, we've always said, in having a house and having a home. Isn't that true? There's a world of difference between just having a house and actually having a home. We've all visited somewhere in someone's house and felt welcome, but at some point in time, we wanted to do what? (laughs) Go home. (laughs) We wanted to go back to our house. Was it because we didn't feel at home at their house? Not necessarily. They may have been very good at receiving us and gave us everything we needed and looked after our needs and we just felt like we were a part of the family and we could walk around in our pajamas and do whatever and just felt comfortable, yet it wasn't our home. It wasn't our home. You see, we all just want to find this place that's home and there's a gigantic difference between just having a house and a home why is it that we always want to find our home when we've been away 
We know that there is nowhere in this world that we're more welcome than in our home. Why? Because we've set it up to be a certain way. We've got things arranged in a certain manner. We have memories there. We look around and see pictures on the wall and things that remind us of things. And It's more than just a structure to us. It's, it's home. I don't even know another word to use for it. Well, see, Jesus, he comes into our heart to live. And my question to you this morning is this. Does Jesus find a house or a home when he shows up there? Has he found him just a house or has he actually found a home? You see, I think about our house. This is probably going to get me in trouble. And the $20 my wife takes is going to come far short of the couch I'm going to sleep on for this. But I'm going to use us as an example. It's horrible to be a pastor's wife or children because you wind up in all the stories. But I think about when we invite someone over to the house, we invite them to come by and say, hey, you want to have dinner with us on a Saturday night or whatever? And they come over to the house. And, and we always have to do one thing before you show up. If you're ever invited to our house and you don't just show up as a surprise, but you're invited, understand that what you see when you get there it's not how we normally live. It's really not. Are you, are you familiar with that? You know, you say, hey, come over and visit. And what do you do? If you're going to have them over for dinner at 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, you spend all day Saturday doing what? Cleaning. <laughs> Straightening up the house. You stop and think, okay, they're coming over. We're going to sit in the living room or the family room. We're going to watch TV. And then we're going to go in the kitchen. Oh, there's this bathroom downstairs that are probably going. We may wind up in the dining room. So if we get those areas taken care of, they have no business upstairs. We'll just take it all up there. <laughs> there we go. We kind of straighten up a little bit. We kind of straighten up. Well, you know, our hearts are a lot like a house. Have you ever thought about that? Your heart's a lot like a house. You see, in our house, we have this room today we call the family room. It's the room that we gather in. We're probably the most comfortable in the family room of any room in the house. It's where you get home, you put on your pajamas and your t-shirt and your bedroom shoes and your cup of coffee and you turn on the TV and it's the place that you sit and you talk about your day and you watch things on TV and you just feel comfortable there. In our house, there's constantly water bottles all over the floor because that's my dog's favorite toy and we're constantly throwing this tennis ball back and forth. It's just the place that feels like home. It's really just this place that feels like home. You ever thought about what Jesus sees when he shows up in the family room of your heart? That place that you spend the most time in your heart that is you. Does he see you studying his word? Does he see you praying and thinking about him? Does he see you just sitting quietly and meditating on who God is? Or does he see you taking in the world into your heart? Judging your standards by the things you see on the news. Does he see more of the world in your family room or more of him when he shows up? You know, there's another room I find interesting in our house. It's my favorite room in the house for two reasons. Number one, when I go in this room, most of the time, nobody in my family is going to join me at all, ever. Any guess what that room is? No, it's not the bathroom. <laughs> it's the kitchen. It's the kitchen. Why? My wife is an absolute fabulous cook. This is not to say anything negative about her cooking ability. This is, however, to mention a lot about her cooking desire. 
Those are two absolute opposite things. Her, her daddy owned a restaurant. Her brother owns a restaurant in the catering business now. She cooks just as good as they do, but she's not inclined to enjoy it any whatsoever. I, on the other hand, I really stink as a cook, but I love to be in the kitchen. I love to cook. So I'll go in the kitchen and I'll cook and everybody else will sit in the family room until dinner's ready and they'll come over. So we'll have friends over and I'll either be on the grill or I'm in the kitchen doing things and getting dinner together. Then everybody's appetite kind of gets up and they come in the kitchen to see what's going on. You know, we have a place in our heart that's kind of like that kitchen. It's the place in our heart that shows what we hunger for. When Jesus shows up in your heart, What does he find your appetite to be? Is your appetite for those things of the world? Is your appetite for, let's see what happened on the news today. Let's see who won the ball game yesterday. Hey, you know, I heard there's this new book out, Fifty Shades of Some Color. I heard there's this other thing going on. You know what? I can't make it through my day without reading the newspaper. Does he hear those things and see those things in the kitchen of your heart? Or does he see a Bible that's fallen apart because your appetite's so much for the Word that you're in it day in and day out? Does the first place you go is not for the coffee maker of your heart, but for the Bible of your heart? Is the first thing you do in your day is gain an appetite for God? So when Jesus shows up and he looks into your heart, what is he seeing there? But you know what? There's also another place in our heart, and it's that place that if you ever come to my house, and you head for this particular door, I will tackle you and hold you down. Do you know what room that is? It's called a closet. What do we use a closet for when company's coming over? We're going to hide everything we don't want our company to see. Isn't that the truth? It happens that way at my house. Matter of fact, it's so bad sometimes. We shove it all in. I hold the door till she throws the last thing in, and I slam my body up against it like I'm wrestling in WWE and just hope the latch catches. Then we hope nobody walks by and twists the knob. Because when you do, it just springs out like that snake out of the can. You know, you've got a closet in your heart, too. It's that place that this morning you think you have hidden that sin that you've committed and nobody's going to see. It's that place that you think nobody knows what you're looking at on that computer when they're not around. It's that place that those text messages you're exchanging with that friend of the opposite sex is hidden. It's that place in the corner of your heart where your hatred for somebody or a particular ethnic group or a particular thing going on around you, it's that place that you hide that. But see, for Jesus to be at home, not just in a house, to be at home in your heart, he's got to have access to every room. He's got to find within those rooms things that make him comfortable. And my question is this. When Jesus shows up into your heart, is is he at home? Or does he first have to go around your heart and clean it up? Does he have to go into that family room and take those things off of the television you ought to not be watching? Does he have to go into your kitchen and throw out the newspaper and put a Bible in its place so that that's where your focus is? Does he have to go to that closet to twist the knob and as the junk flies open, throw it out? You see, because Jesus may be in your heart, but he may not be at home. And why may he not be at home? It's because of those sins in your heart. And he tells us there at the end of 17, 
as, as we're reading in 17, that Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. How do you clean up the rooms of your heart? How do you straighten out those corners? How do you empty the closet? Through faith. Believing that Christ died for all of your sins. Understanding you can take those sins to the foot of the cross and find forgiveness. Knowing that to repent and turn for those sins removes them from the closet and casts them as far as the east is from the west. To trust God when he says that if you will only confess the sins to me, I, God, will forgive you of those sins. And I won't just do it today. I will go on cleansing you from all unrighteousness. You see, when I think about our heart, I think about the fact that that heart needs to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And it needs to be indwelt by Christ. And it needs to have one other thing. We're never going to get through all five this morning. It needs to be filled with incomprehensible love. Incomprehensible love. In the second half of verse 17, it says this, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Paul says we are to be rooted and grounded in love. How important is this love? It's what hung Jesus upon a cross for our sins. The Bible says God so loved us that he gave Jesus as our redemption and our place. It's so important in the walk of a Christian. If you look back in the book of Galatians, just back a couple of pages from Ephesians where you were, he mentions these things that, that are given to us. This fruit that hangs from our tree that's proof on the outside of what God has done for us on the inside. And it's in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and it starts down in verse 22. This is a section entitled Walking in the Spirit. How do you walk in the Spirit that's indwelling you and in strengthening your body inwardly? He says this in, in uh, verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The proper interpretation, the proper reading of that passage is not exactly the way I just read it because I put commas in between every one of those things. But the way it was originally written, it would read like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And stop. And then it would tell you that out of love comes joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, first and foremost. Without that, none of the other things ever manifest themselves. To have this fruit, we must do what it says there in Ephesians, or actually in, in Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24 when it says... And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's like Paul was praying for the inner man to be strengthened and indwelt by Christ. And you can be indwelt by Christ because you have crucified the flesh with your passions and desires. He goes on to say, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. 
provoking one another, envying one another. What he's saying in those verses is, to die to the flesh is to live by faith. We are to have a house of our heart that is cleaned by the giving of that fleshy self away. Stop desiring the things of the flesh, both that we always have our way and that we have the things that make us feel good. Do away with those things. Root our mind. Ground our hearts in the love of Christ. See, to live by the Spirit is to give complete control over to God. When I say complete, I mean complete control. To keep the house of your heart inhabitable, God must be in control of that. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember? He was asked back in Matthew. I think it's Matthew 22. And we'll end with this this morning, Matthew 22. Yep, in Matthew 22, verse 34, it reads like this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So they're going to confront Jesus. They walk up to him and said, then one of them, a lawyer, (laughs) they got the smartest guy in the whole bunch, the one that could argue things down to the minutest point, could even convince you if you knew you were right that you were wrong by his argument, this lawyer. And this lawyer asked him a question in verse 35, testing him and said, The question here in verse 36 is, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, isn't that just like us as humans? What's the one thing? I'm willing to do one thing, God. What's the one thing I can do that satisfies it all? Don't give me a whole list. I probably can't take care of them. But just one? Isn't there just one thing, God, that I can do? And they're trying to pin him down. They're asking, what's the one thing? And Jesus says in 35, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But he doesn't stop. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How do we know that we have been strengthened in our inner man? How do we know that Christ is at home in our heart? First and foremost, you're filled. You're filled with that love of God. That love for God. With all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, you desire to have a relationship with God. And how is it evidenced that that relationship exists? You love your neighbor. See, he says there's two parts to the answer of that question. If you love God with your entire being, that love of God flows through your heart and your hands to the world around you. Paul started in this prayer, I was hoping to finish this morning, by asking God, for those things, that we would be strengthened in our inner man, that we would be indwelt fully by Jesus and that he would feel at home in our hearts. 
And because he was a home in our hearts, that we would just be filled with this love of God that you could never imagine. So I ask you this morning, what's the condition of your heart? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.